Well, again, we welcome those of you who are visiting with us uh, to our worship service. We are, as a church, beginning to study together the book of Hebrews. So I invite you, if you have your Bible with you, there are also copies laying around here and there in the pews, to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And our lesson today comes from verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Let's pray together again. We always want to depend on the Holy Spirit to help us in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and the hearing of it. You actually have the harder job uh, to hear the Word of God uh, than I think I do as a preacher, actually. But we all together sit under it. So let's pray together. Lord, we now come to you and ask for your favor, your help, the blessing, the strength and power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Grant us, Lord, love for you and each other. Grant us, Lord, ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that is responsive to the heart of the Good Shepherd. May we hear his voice in the scriptures and follow after you. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. And he, that is Christ, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. Our focus in verse 3 is going to be that last line in that verse. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our sermon is entitled, The Session of Christ. The Session of Christ. Now, I suspect that many of you, if not all of you, have heard about the birth of Christ. You've heard about the life of Christ. You've heard about the ministry of Christ. You've heard about the passion of Christ or the suffering of Christ. You've heard about the resurrection of the Christ. You've heard about the ascension of Christ. But some of you, I bet, have never heard of the session of Christ. And you say, Pastor, what in the world is the session of Christ? Now, I might speak here for a moment to the boys and girls, because I'm sure maybe you have heard that word session, and you're thinking, aha, he's talking about the elders of the church. No, not talking about the elders. This is not a sermon on church government. What do we mean by the session of Christ? Well, the word session comes from the Latin, the Latin word sedeo, S-E-D-E-O, sedeo, which means to sit, to sit, where we get the English word session. The reason we call the elders sometimes the session in Presbyterian circles is because the elders sit, and when they sit, they're in session, just like a judge. When the judge comes into the courtroom and sits at the bench, the court is now what? In session. So when Jesus sits on his throne, Billy, come on, this is a great topic. Cheer up. 
Sorry, Billy. Sorry, I'm not picking on him. Sort of. The session, the session of Christ means that Christ is sitting. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And notice here what our verse says, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now you say, are you really going to preach an entire sermon on Christ sitting down? Just watch me. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Actually, I think you're going to find there's a lot more here than meets the eye. In fact, uh, we've got, as no surprise to many of you, uh, three points here today. Now, the creeds, one of which we read this morning, the Nicene Creed, mentions the session of Christ. Let me read you again what you said in, by way of confession just moments ago. And ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. That's speaking about Jesus there. Who is it that went into heaven? It was Jesus. When did Jesus go into heaven? He went into heaven after he was raised from the dead and made appearances unto men over a period of 40 days. And the scripture said that he ascended in the sight of the disciples and the apostles. He ascended into the clouds. He ascended to heaven. And what did he do? He sat on the right hand of the Father. The Apostles' Creed. Let me read you the Apostles' Creed. It says, quote, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, last week we were talking about how Jesus is like his heavenly Father in verse 3. We were saying how Jesus Christ is omnipotent in his divine nature, like the heavenly Father, and how he reigns with his heavenly Father today. I want to talk more about that last part of Jesus Christ reigning at the right hand of the Father in three ways. Each of these begins with the following. The session of Christ signifies. The session of Christ, the sitting of Christ, signifies, number one, the completeness of his substitutionary atonement. The session of Christ signifies the completeness of his substitutionary atonement. Point number one. Point number two, the session of Christ signifies the honor and glory that now belongs to Christ. The session of Christ signifies the honor and glory that now belongs to Christ. And then finally, number three, the the session of Christ signifies the new heavenly work of Christ. The session of Christ signifies, thirdly, the new heavenly work of Christ. So the completeness of the substitutionary atonement, the honor and glory that belongs to him, and now the new heavenly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that from the last line of verse 3. So let's look together here again. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice here that the author of Hebrews focuses our attention on the verb to sit. He sat down. At the right hand. Now, when I had thought about this over the years, I tended to always think of the session of Christ in terms of his kingly office. Remember, boys and girls, how many offices does Jesus have? You know this. I know you know this, right? He has three offices. What are they? The office of prophet, priest, and king. 
Many times when I would think about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, I would tend to think of it as you might. That has to be speaking about the office of king. He's sitting like a king. Kings sit on thrones. That makes sense, and it is true. Jesus sits on the throne by way of all three of his offices, prophet, priest, and king. And so it's natural for us, I think, to think of Christ as king on the throne. But John Owen brought something to my attention as I studied this week, and that was that Owen believes that the emphasis here is not on the kingly office of Christ in this verse, but on the priestly office of Christ. That is, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father as a priest. When I read that, my mind was blown. And why? Because what did the priest ordinarily do? Think with me back in the Old Testament. The high priest, remember Jesus is the high priest, the high priest in the Old Covenant would go into the temple. He would go into the inner room of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the mercy seat was, where the golden cherubim were there. And what would he do? He only went in there one time a year. He always made sure that there were bells and pomegranates on the edge of his robe. The tinkling sound thus would signify his coming into the presence of God, lest God consume him in judgment. And he would always come with an offering of blood. And as the high priest came in there, he would pray and confess the sins of God's people and his own sins, and then would sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat, signifying the atonement that Jesus one day would shed in his own blood on the cross. But until Christ came, God provided for the people of God through the through the offerings of bulls and goats and calves. And the priest would come in and he would sprinkle that blood. And what John Owen said was this, that as a high priest, he would stand before the mercy seat in reverence, bowing down in the presence of God and ministering to God. He did not sit on that mercy throne in between the two golden cherubim. He did not touch the Ark of the Covenant. You remember what happened to the man who touched the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament? And God killed him. He ministered in front of it. He sprinkled blood on it. But he dare not touch it. And yet, what John Owen shows us here from verse 3 is what? Here is our high priest, which we will learn later in the book of Hebrews, is a better priest with a better sacrifice, meaning his own atonement, his own suffering on the cross. Notice again, look at the context of verse 3. It says here that when he had made purification of sins, speaking of Jesus, when Jesus had atoned for sins, when he had propitiated and expiated the sins of his people, he what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He did sit down on the throne between the not just golden cherubim, but the living seraphim that Isaiah 6 describes that have the six wings, and with two wings they fly, and two wings they cover their eyes, and two wings they cover their creatureliness. And they cry out unceasingly day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. 
the God Almighty. And Jesus, as a better high priest, comes and he sits down on that throne that no former typological high priest would have ever even dared touch. This is a great and significant point for us here. What is the significance of it for us? Notice here that he sits, as he sits, he sits in the place of honor. He sits at the right hand of God here. This is the place of honor. Remember in Genesis chapter 48, how Jacob, when he was seeking to bless his grandchildren, he crossed his right and left. And in fact, his, his own son said, no, no, dad, that's not right. This is the older one. This is the younger one. And Jacob said, I know, son but the younger one will be greater than the older. And he put the right hand on the younger one's head and the left hand on the older one when he gave his blessing. We think of Solomon who exalted his mother. His mother comes in and bows before the king. And in order to honor her, what does he do? He sits Bathsheba at his right hand, we are told in 1 Kings 2.19. In Psalm 45, in verse 9, we are told that the church, which is the bride of the bridegroom, the bride sits at the right hand of the bridegroom. Again, to quote Owen, John Owen says that the greatest glory that God hath to bestow in heaven is this, sitting at God's right hand. Again, if I could paraphrase Owen, Verse 3 does not speak so much to the eternal glory of Christ as the eternal Son of God as it does the exaltation of Christ as the one who is bestowed with glory and honor for the completion of his sacrifice. That is, he is being glorified as the God-man, as the man who has offered up himself. Now, what do we make of this? What is the implication for us today here? Well, there, there could be many but one I want you to really hear today, and that is this. I want you to see the definitive nature of Jesus' sacrifice for you. That is, Jesus is sitting here not merely and only as king, but he as sitting as a high priest. What does that mean? It means that what Jesus has done for you and me on the cross is sufficient. It is finished, as Jesus said. It is complete. It, it is absolutely perfect. There's no other sacrifice that can be offered to God that would even be comparable to what Jesus Christ has done. Do you see why works makes no sense in the scheme of salvation, in the scheme of justification? Do, do you see why our works can never be a part of the equation of what it means to justify a sinner? Christ's work is so complete, so perfect, so holy, that he himself as the high priest sits down at the right hand of God. As to say, there can be nothing else added unto this work, Father, than that which I have done on behalf of my people in dying on the cross. Why is the cross so great? The cross is so significant because... On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the eternal Son of God who became a man, he went to that cross as a sinless man. 
And yet he takes the place of sinners on that cross and owns the sins as though he himself had personally committed those sins. And then he dies under the wrath of his father so that God judges him with all the equivalency of eternal hell and perdition. It is poured out on the soul and body of Christ. The sky becomes dark even though it's noon and the sun is in its zenith, and yet this outer judgment darkness descends upon the head of Christ. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you are suffering for the sins of your people. This is the atoning work which we agreed upon in eternity past and which now in the fullness of time you are coming to accomplish And you must drink this cup of my wrath in order to satisfy divine justice so that I might let sinners into my holy presence. And so Jesus, as he dies on the cross and he gives up his spirit, he he commends his soul into the hands of God and he, he quotes there, it is finished. And then when he comes into the presence of God after the resurrection, after the ascension, he comes into the presence. He comes into the holy of holies in heaven. And the father says, my son, sit at my right hand. This is what was foretold in Psalm 2. This is what was foretold in Psalm 110. This is why you need to sing those psalms. They speak of this very moment. Today I have begotten you. Today you sit at my right hand as a priest who has finished his work. And now the law asks no more. All is well. All is finished. The sacrifice is perfect. The priest who offered it is perfect. The blood is perfect. The propitiation is perfect. The expiation is perfect. The goat who went into the wilderness is perfected in the work of Jesus Christ. And we need to appreciate that we, therefore, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I don't bring my prayers. I don't bring my offerings. I don't bring, you know, this is why the, the prayer of the Pharisee was rejected in the temple when he said, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other men. I, 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 bring, I, I bring the tithe. I fast twice a week. I do all these things. And that is nothing compared to what Jesus has done. How insulting is it to the work of Christ to even mention those things as a reason that they should be accepted in the sight of God? There is only one reason you and I should be accepted by God. And we get this wrong. We get all wrong. The only reason we are accepted and acceptable to God is because of the work of Christ. It's not even because I believed. It's because of Christ. Because even my faith is a gift from God. I have nothing to bring. Christ has done it all. You know, it has implications for what we do each Sunday in the service when we observe the Lord's Supper. Because in the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? This is a sacramental memorial of what Jesus did. We are, we, what we are doing is we 
We are not reenacting the sacrifice, as some would teach. We are not offering Jesus over and over and over again. I am not a priest. I do not do sacerdotal work. I am not presenting any offering. We are remembering. This table says, do this in remembrance of me. We are remembering the once and forever sacrifice of Christ. This is why Protestants got so upset with the Mass, where Jesus was offered again and again and again and again, as though the the cup now was his literal blood and the bread became his literal body, offering it up. This is why, you know, you watch the Mass and the priests are offering it up. What are they doing? They, They are raising it up to God. It's another sacrifice, but there is no other sacrifice. We gather around a table of ordinary bread and ordinary fruit of the vine. Nothing magical is happening. We are simply coming together as poor sinners, acknowledging the once and forever sacrifice of our Savior and saying, this is our hope. It is Christ. We're looking beyond the elements. We're not looking at the elements even themselves. As though somehow the elements were efficacious in and of itself, We are looking beyond them to the work of Christ. We are coming to the Father and we are saying, Lord, we come as poor and penitent sinners who have sinned against you and you alone. Lord, our only hope is what work was done by our Savior as symbolized by what's in our hands. This bread, this cup, this is pointing us to the once and forever sufficient sacrifice of Jesus who is now sat at your right hand as priest. Lord, bless as we eat the bread. Bless as we drink of this cup, Lord, in remembrance of you. Pour out the blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. Pour out the Spirit upon us, O God, as we look to this sufficient sacrifice of Jesus who sits at your right hand. And give us, Lord, the grace we need to live out the gospel. I got to move on. Point number two, this verse also shows us that the session of Christ, the sitting of Christ, secondly, signifies the honor and the glory that now belongs to Christ. It signifies the honor and the glory that now belongs to Christ. It not only signifies the completion of his substitutionary atonement, but now that Christ is in full honor and glory. He, he, uh, there is no greater glory bestowed upon the person than to be invited to sit at God's right hand. It is the greatest glory that God hath bestowed in heaven, says Owen. The throne is the greatest expression of the majesty and the glory of God. If we want to see what is the, 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 the greatest expression of God's majesty is God. And the Puritans said it was the throne of God. What, what, what is the center of Revelation chapter 21 and 22? Is it not the throne of God? What, what is going on in heaven as John pulls the curtain back and we get a glimpse of heaven? What is at the center of what's going on? It is, it is that God himself is on the throne and the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, before the throne and the Lamb who is standing where? Between the people of God and the throne of God. But it is the throne that John sees, the glory of God. The throne is the greatest expression of God's majesty, his glory. 
Isaiah chapter 6 is where we remember the prophet Isaiah was undone, wasn't he? When he saw the majesty of God on the throne. He sees the majesty of the Lord and he suddenly becomes painfully aware of the uncleanness of his lips, the very instrument that God would use in his life to bring life to others through the preaching of God's word. That was the very center of iniquity that needed to be cleansed by Christ. If you have your hymnal, look with me here at the back of your hymnal, Westminster Larger Catechism, page 945, page 945, the Westminster Larger Catechism actually has a whole question and answer on this very subject of the session of Christ. The Larger Catechism, page 945, question 54, how is Christ exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God. How is Christ exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God? The answer, Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God in that as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favor with God. The Father, with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth. And I want to stop there. I'll get to the rest of that in the third point here. But what we see here is, number one, that Christ has the highest favor of God or with God. He has been exalted to a a position of supreme glory and honor. Some have suggested that that was the reason Satan rebelled, was that he was not put in that position of supreme favor with God. I don't know, but could be. And notice here that he is full, the full joy of the Lord, the power, the glory are all given to Christ. Now, what do we make of these things? I have four applications for us by way of this second point. Number one is this. The Bible teaches that you as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are here and you believe in Jesus Christ sincerely, you are united to Christ. You are thereby also united to the glory which belongs now to Christ. So that you, while you participate in yet still this veil of tears, a world of sorrow, a world of suffering. Nevertheless, there is another reality that we as believers need to be reminded of time and time and time again. Otherwise, we'll become like that man in Pilgrim's Progress that John Bunyan writes about who is always digging in the dirt and never realizes that there's a crown above his head because he never looks up. One of the things that the session of Christ should remind us as Christians who struggle with everyday struggles is that we are in union with the glorious and honorable Jesus Christ. Look up, believer, and look to him by faith who is entered into that rest. And because he is there, as you trust in him, you will soon be there too. Romans chapter 12 says this, Be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Now, what can bring about a renovation, a renovation of your mind? Well, the Bible says that it is the Spirit of God through the Scriptures, as the Scriptures and the truth of the Scriptures are brought to your mind. Your mind is lifted up to things that are above. Your mind gets out of the rut that the world is always trying to put you in. And one of the things that the, the Spirit does as He lifts up your mind, He lifts you up to the one who is infinitely exalted. Your mind are daily dragged down by the gravitational pull of this present world. You come to this place of worship each Sunday looking for what? For refreshment, for strength, for renewal, for grace, for power from on high, from God. Because you're going to have to go back out there and you're going to have to go back into that place of business or into that uh, shop or into that uh, factory and listen to all the cursing and listen to all the blasphemy and listen to all the dirty jokes and all the weariness and all the commercials that you're going to see that are going to tell you this is the way to happiness, this is the way to have a, a, a nice life, is all these goods and all these luxuries, you need more of this and more of that, and it is always going to weigh down on you, and the scripture is saying, wait, look up to the glorious one. As you look up to Christ and your mind is transformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, it will give you that inoculation that you need to resist the cacophony that comes at us on a daily basis. So that we wouldn't be as that man in Pilgrim's Progress, always looking at the dirt, but looking to the crown that is above our heads. That's point number one, application number one. Christ is in glory. Look up to him who is glorified. Number two, the truth about Jesus' session, his sitting at the right hand, will help you also with your problems and your trials that you're going to undergo. All of us, Jesus has made us this promise. Lest you think I'm, I'm some kind of wild-eyed charismatic here talking about the glory and power of God and you need to just get into the power and glory of God and live out your best life now. Jesus has promised, which you don't hear on TV, that through many trials and tribulations, we must all enter the kingdom. It's funny how they don't quote that promise very often on television, do they? Through many trials, many temptations, many disappointments, many difficulties, many setbacks, we must enter the kingdom of God. But through it all, we have what? We have this present glory of being united to Christ who is glorified. As Paul would say in the book of Philippians, that I might know him in his sufferings and what? In the power of his resurrection. In the power of his glory. In the power of him who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It will help put your problems in perspective, friend. It will deliver you from what doctors call myopia. You know what myopia is, boys and girls? Myopia is where you can only see very little in front of you. And what Christ does when you come to faith in Jesus Christ is he delivers you from myopia, making big things of little things, where you only, instead of seeing very little, if you look, make a hole in your hand and you can only see a little, God heals in the blindness and he enables you to see reality as it really is, and to see that our problems and our trials, as severe as some of them can be, yet at best are temporary. So that Paul could say in Romans chapter 8, I do not consider my 
trials, my difficulties, worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits me. And then number three, it's going to give you grace to persevere. It's going to give you grace to persevere. In the last letter that Paul wrote that we have in the scriptures was 2 Timothy. And in them, you'll remember that Paul said to Timothy, I have run the race. I have now before me an everlasting crown awaiting me. Where did Paul get grace to endure the beatings, the stonings, the shipwrecks, the drifting on the ocean day and night, the imprisonments, the uh, disappointments, the defections of colleagues? Where did Paul get that grace to persevere? He got it by being in communion with the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. And then that finally here, number four by way of application, it will give you a more generous spirit yourself. It will make you as a person a more generous spirit. Worldly people are always fighting over the last scrap here on earth. Because they are not cognizant of the riches of the glory that have already been obtained by Jesus Christ for us. I remember I was talking with a young man. He had just recently, in the last year or so, had moved to this community, had a new job. And uh, we were making small talk and conversing. And I said, do you have any vacation plans this summer? And somebody overheard me asking that question. And said, he just got here with a new job. You're already giving him vacation? And I let it go, but I thought to myself, what a narrow spirit. You know, just because he's new, just because he just started a job, why can't you ask him if he has any recreational plans? What delivers you from that? One of the things that will deliver you from that is seeing the glory and the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus, the freedom that it gives uh, you in this life uh, to be generous towards others, because you know there are better things coming for us all. Don't be a narrow-spirited Christian, especially towards people who are under your authority. Number three, the session of Christ thirdly signifies the new heavenly work of Christ. When Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, as it point number one says, it, it demonstrates the end, the telos of his earthly ministry. It has come to its finishing point. But it also transitions us into, really, the heavenly ministry of Christ now. It's not as though the sitting of Jesus is now... Well, it, now Jesus is at poolside. Now the life of an eternal spa has begun. <laughs> no, what is going on here? Jesus is, is transitioning now to his heavenly ministry. You know, if you look at Luke's works of the gospel according to Luke in the book of Acts, really it's volume one and two of Christ, isn't it? It's volume one is his earthly ministry. And where does it end? It ends with his ascension. And where does volume two pick up? 
Volume 2 picks up with the ascended ministry of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit there, as he promised in the first chapter and fulfills in the second chapter of Acts. The earthly ministry of Jesus is finished, but Christ's session does not mean a cessation from all ministry to the church but that the nature of the work has now significantly changed. If you go back to question 54 here, notice the second part here that we did not read in the answer. I'll read it again. Christ is exalted and is sitting at the right hand of God in that as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favor with God, the Father with all fullness of joy, glory, power over all things in heaven and earth. But notice, this is what I did not read in the first part. And doth gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnisheth his ministers and people with gifts and graces and maketh intercession for them. Notice what the Westminster divines are saying here about the session of Christ. The session of Christ means that now Jesus has entered into a new phase of his ministry. He is doing what? He is gathering his church. He's defending his church. He's subduing your enemies and his enemies. He is furnishing you with gifts and graces. And he is praying for us here. Jesus Christ is doing all this and more. He is gathering his church. He is building his church as he promised. Now, this has a lot of implications for us here. First of all, let me speak to those of you who are struggling spiritually. What does the session of Christ say to you? Especially those of you who are struggling, maybe even to the point where you're not certain if you're a Christian. You're not certain. You have no assurance inwardly as to whether you belong to Christ. For those of you who struggle with fear as to whether you'll persevere to the end, the session of Christ calls us to consider his exalted power and generosity. What does the session of Christ mean for you as a poor person, a poor sinner? It means now Christ is seeking to be generous to you by giving you his spirit, his session at the right hand has secured the ministry of the Holy Spirit for his church. So that while the second person of the Trinity goes and sits with the Father, now the second and the first person of the Trinity send the third person of the Trinity to you. The Holy Spirit comes to you and he gives you the gifts you need and he gives you the graces. Some of the gifts he gives you personally. Some of the gifts he gives those people in other pews around you to help you in your walk with Christ. The Lord is blessing you. The Lord was emphatic with his disciples, wasn't he? Stay in Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. Why? Because I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon you. Don't leave the upper room until the Spirit of Christ has come upon you. I am going to the Father and I will sit at his right hand. And when I do, and when my coronation is complete, I, in celebration of that coronation, will give my spirit to my people, and they will rejoice in that day. He has given you 
numerous teachers in the church. Look at the providential care God has given for you. Look at all the sermons, the books that you have access to, all the helps in your Christian life. The Lord has blessed you with an abundance. Look at how Christ has been also, secondly, been subduing your enemies. Think about how your life is so much different in many ways than your brothers and sisters in the first century. In the early stages of Christianity, our brothers and sisters often were going to stadiums, boys and girls, to give up their life for Christ. The enemies were great and they were numerous. Now there are still enemies out there, but look at the progress we have made through the centuries. Our brothers and sisters sometimes served as torches in Nero's gardens, but now we have these liberties in many parts of the world to serve Jesus Christ. Even if you go back only 400 years ago, you know, at best, most Christians in their home had a Bible and a few books, Christian books, and that was it. But now look at all that you have. You have a multitude of Christian books and helps. You have a multitude of media and sermons. You, you have the best, you have access to the best teaching of the best theologians in the world, in the English-speaking world today, just by going to YouTube or somewhere else and to hear their teaching. In the early centuries, Christians were often few, a small minority in most countries. And now the church is growing, especially in Africa and Asia today. We are seeing the, the church growing rapidly because of the session of Christ. And then also, sitting at the right hand of the Father means that Jesus is praying for you. He is praying for the church. He is at the right hand of God. Now, what does that denote? It denotes, among other things, the nearness of God, doesn't it? That the Son is oh so near to the Father. He is no longer, as in his earthly ministry, crying out to the Father with tears. Now he is sitting right next to the Father and is making intercession for us. Father, now that I have finished my work and now that I am sitting here, will you not bless so-and-so? Will you not give grace to this people, to this church? Why do you forsake the prayer meeting when such blessings are so available because of the session of Christ? Why do you forsake the prayer closet and spend the whole evening watching television? We're surfing through the internet when the abundance of Christ is there and all Christ need do is say, do you see her praying? Lord, Father, will you not bless those petitions? Christ's prayers to God have an immediacy, a proximity. He is face to face with God Almighty, the Father. And he intercedes for you as a tender shepherd who cares for the individual lambs in his flock. Take encouragement of God's great love for you. Even if you're going through a difficult time, remember 
Peter was attacked by Satan. And yet, what did Jesus say? Even in his earthly ministry, he said, yet, Peter, I've prayed for you. And when you do turn, encourage your brothers. How much greater is the efficacy of Christ's heavenly prayers if such a prayer could be heard while Jesus was on earth still undergoing his sufferings? Now he is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. The session of Christ means that the Spirit has been given. You know, the coronation of the King of England is coming up in, I think, the first week of May. I think it's May 6th, I read. And uh, you will see uh, your great British cousins celebrating. But think how much greater is the celebration of the coronation of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit should be poured out upon all of the world, and that out of that world, that the Spirit should bring in a great multitude that no man can number of all his elect people, because he sits at the right hand of the Father. Well, the session of Christ, in conclusion, needs to be thought about more by us. His earthly work is finished. His glory is now fully bestowed on him. His prophetic priestly reign is commenced with blessings innumerable for the people of God. This is a great blessing and one which we should thank God and think on regularly.